If you have your Bibles, could you take them and turn to Genesis 46? It's where we will be today. Sometimes when it comes to stories in the Bible, I am just really amazed at how human they are. I know some of you are going to be new to our story of Joseph. We've been looking at it the last several weeks, and some of you are just joining us today in the kind of the middle or even toward the end of a story. This story is a very human story. It's a, a blended family that didn't blend so well. A family where a group of brothers hate their brother so much they sell him into slavery, convince their dad, their dad named Jacob, that their brother Joseph is dead. I mean, it's a, it's a terribly dysfunctional family. They try to move on with their lives thinking they've, they've done that thing, but they can kind of move on from that, but the guilt doesn't end. We've looked at the story again, the story where they end up meeting this brother a couple decades later, only in this place the roles have reversed instead of him being a victim. He's, the, he's actually the one in charge and controls their fate, what's going to happen to them. He reveals himself to them, which would be terrifying if it weren't right on the heels of that, he recognizes God had a plan and he shows mercy when he could have gotten revenge and could have been aggressively like trying to wipe them out. So we've looked at this story, which is anything but a straight line. Like it is winding all over the place, much like our stories are, with our own family dysfunction, with our complicated family dynamics, with pain and loss that you and I experience. Grief, guilt, shame. Is there anybody that goes like a month without some of those dynamics at play? A week? Hardly a day. When, when life has to be rebuilt, when we, are we going to experience justice or mercy wrestling through those things? This is not far from where we live. And last week there was another kind of human dimension that you realize this is really difficult for someone to do, and we get a picture of this, and it's, it's helpful this Sunday even that we think of this. Last week, it looked like, what does it take for a family to move? Like completely uproot and go to another place. That, that is what Jacob's family was doing. So whenever I've gone to travel internationally, I've done so with round-trip tickets and, pa- and a passport. But what happens when you're immigrating? And some of you know this experience when you emigrate somewhere Permanently, like that's, that's the plan. You're settling down in a new location. And all the dynamics that go with moving a family where you don't plan on a return trip, that is what we're looking at. That's the story that we saw in Genesis 46. A man named Jacob is moving everything to this new land. He's moving from Canaan down to Egypt. God's told him to do it. He is doing it. And he heads down to Egypt because he is on a mission to reunite with his son, Joseph. So I want us to pick up, like we started with him going down to Egypt, but I want you to see what happens when he arrives. If you have your Bibles, Genesis 46, verse 28, it says this, that Jacob, so he's the, the dad, and in some ways the patriarch of this family, Jacob sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen, and they came into the land of Goshen, and Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. So we've got this picture. And in some ways, sometimes the Bible just 
Ah, uh, it's modest when it comes to the details because this is one of those scenes. I'm not sure this is how it works in heaven. Like, we'll get there and we can go, could I see that scene? I would love to see that unfold. This is one of those that has to be at the top of the list for me. It says, though, that he presented himself to him. This is Joseph who had went to meet Israel's father. And he fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good Wow, so many things that we could fill in. Like, what an emotional scene. I, have, I think this is one of the most moving scenes in the Bible where 22 years, you never thought you'd see him again. He had both ways, father to son, son to father. And Israel says to Joseph, I can die now, <laughs> let me die. I've seen your face. I know you're still alive. It's such a powerful story to me. So gripping. Yet we've been training our training like our eyes and training our hearts to notice some things going on in passages like this, the things that may be easier to miss if we're not careful. So while that's a very moving scene, Genesis 46 is an interesting story. It it has something in some ways to me hiding in plain sight because in the middle of the story, chapter 46, we've got Jacob starting to go down to Egypt. At the end of chapter 46, he lands in Egypt, but in the middle are 20 verses of names. From verse 8 to verse 27, just list of name after name after name after name. God's the great economist. He weighs nothing. So why is that in there? And if you know, like, if you know me, if you've been around uh, my teaching, if you've been around Ogletown, you know, like, lists like these fascinate me. And they haven't always. I used to kind of use them as opportunities. Skip ahead. Like, name, name, name. Okay, got it. Next. But when's the next kind of thing going on? But I slow down now. And realize, okay, why does God include 20 verses of names? Why is that in chapter 46, right in the middle of a story? And it seems like, kind of like, that's a weird turn. Like, why go there? What is he telling us? Well, these names aren't just any names. They're the descendants of Jacob. So God begins to, in this passage, unpack the family tree of Jacob, all the sons and the daughter. And the names are mentioned, like the name Reuben, he's got a messed up background. Simeon and Levi have things that they certainly wouldn't have been proud of. Judah has many things that he wouldn't be proud of. And name after name, Joseph's the family. I mean, these are, you can go name after name after name. What you realize is there's so many backstories. This family had its faults, and yet here are all their names. And what the biggest backstory with this family and all these names is like they were completely fractured for so many years. Yeah, they were a family by biology and by DNA, but man, they were so fractured. But then you have them all put together, saying, here they all are, and here they are together. We get each name. So each person matters individually. But there's more being communicated. They are together. The the number's interesting to me too because the number when it's final, the final tally is going to be 70 names. And what I don't think is happening in these verses in the middle of Genesis 46, what I don't think is happening is I I don't think it's meant to be some sort of 100% accurate ancestry.com kind of genealogy thing where every name is perfectly, we got uncle so-and-so and aunt so-and-so, we got every cousin, we got everybody all totally mapped out. What's interesting to me about the names are, I mean, there's people that have died and there are people that 
have not yet been born. They're, I mean, the list is meant to tell us something other than just making sure we got every single name in exactly the right spot. You got to be careful with numbers in the Bible, but when you do get a number like seven and then you kind of multiply that greater by, by a factor of 10, you get like that number 70 stands out in the Bible. And I think here it is signaling to us something of like, in totality, seven's the perfect number. And here's this large family, and they are together. God is going to use this family. All the individuals matter. But God's brought them together. And I, I think there's a parallel there. Because this is what God does. God brings together a people. This is what God's always been doing. God brings together a group of people. This group of people had been, like, let's admit it, they've been all over the place. This is a group of people, this family, like Jacob on down, like it doesn't deserve God's grace to be shown to them, and yet God shows grace to them. God is in a covenant relationship with this family. Yes, every individual matters, but God brings together a group of people, and they're identified together. Why that matters to me is here we are, I mean, centuries, millennia later, and God is still doing this. God is bringing together a group of people, a group of people that never deserve his grace, but he still brings us together. In the language of covenant in the Bible, the way covenant works is God says, I will be your God and you will be my people, and that's exactly what Jesus has said to us. As a church, I'm your God and you are my people. As a matter of fact, we are part of a, a new covenant. And a church, like sometimes we talk about going to church, but really the church is a gathering. We're going to a gathering, an assembly, a, like bringing people together. That's exactly what a church is by definition. You enter this covenant. So Israel, like that, there's a family coming together, 70 individuals that are named there, but this family, this family is brought together through faith in Jesus. It's not about ethnicity. As a matter of fact, it's about like all nations, all ethnicities, all languages, all people coming together around Jesus Christ. First Peter 2.10 says it this way. It says, once you are not a people, but because of Jesus, now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. That's why we talk about it. We could talk about it in like, each of us are individually sheep, but God also talks about us as a flock. God talks about us as a body, even though each of us are individually members of the body. But it's the flock of God, and it's the body of Christ, and it's the temple of the Holy Spirit. Even though each of us are, yeah, you're a portion of this, but there's something collective of God bringing us together. We live in a world that caters to us individually. Like, just everything has to meet my needs individually, and God calls us I mean, he's bringing together a people. He's not just dealing with this one-on-one. He's bringing together a people, which is why in a few weeks, I mean, Champ gave the announcement, we're baptizing because baptism is something about your relationship with God, but it's also identifying with the people. I'm part of the, I'm part of the group that is gathered around saying, Jesus is my Lord. He's my Savior. It's what we do every time we take the Lord's Supper. We identify as part of a group. We enjoy communion with the Lord, but communion with each other. Even 
membership class about why, why be members. Well, we're part of a group. Yes, he cares about us individually. Yes, Christ died for us individually. Yes, Jesus loves me. Christ gave his life for the church. His bride. Yes, you matter individually, but even this morning when we gather together and we sing, we can sing with joy because God is for us. I mean, there's something about bringing us together weekly, these rhythms that say, I'm, I'm not alone. I am with my brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and then that, that certainly fleshes itself far beyond this gathering. It fleshes itself in relationships where we pray for each other and we spend time with each other in homes and we care about each other and we serve each other and we speak God's word to each other. And then even as we commission this morning, I mean, we're commissioning as a church, but we're also sending Joe and Elizabeth to be a part of actually being a part of creating other gatherings around the world. Other gatherings, other places where like God's going to draw other people together. This has always been what God's been about. I mean, I, I, I know church is messy. I know you can't get like this many people together and you can't have leaders who are sinners and members who are sinners and all of us who mess up and all of us who have our opinions and our preferences and sometimes don't talk to each other nicely. I mean, you can't get all that together without it being messy. So I, I'm not glamorizing something that really is kind of messy and I'm, I'm, I'm choosing to ignore it. I'm not. I just know that family was a mess and God brings them all together and God is doing something here. God is doing something with us. This is always what God wants to do is bring together a people. I want us to keep moving in this passage because I think there's another parallel for you to see, for us to pay attention to. Notice as Joseph moves the family, look, let's pick up in verse 31 if we can. Joseph said to his brothers and his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh basically that you're here and this is what I'm going to say to him. So he's going to give them an insight into how things work in the court of Egypt. This is what I'm going to say. My brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan, they've come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they've been keepers of livestock, and they brought their flocks, their herds, and all that they have. So that when Pharaoh calls you and says, what's your occupation? This is what you, you say. You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers. And do, you'll do that. You'll say those words in order that you can just stay in the land of Goshen for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So you're going to stay in a separate place. You're going to stay in Goshen rather than the land of Egypt. So Joseph, it says in chapter 47, look at the next chapter. So Joseph went in and he did tell Pharaoh, my, my father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all that they have, all that they possess, they, they've come from the land of Canaan and they're now in the land of Goshen. From among his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, like, what's your occupation? They said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds as our fathers were. And they said to Pharaoh, we've come to sojourn in the land. There's no pasture for your servants' flock where we came from, the famine severe. So now please let your servants, maybe we could dwell in the land of Goshen. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Whatever you want, settle your father and your, your brothers in the best of the land. Let, let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Joseph, Joseph's a wise man. Joseph's a shrewd man. Joseph is, like, he didn't get to where, even where he was, certainly with the Lord's blessing, but God used his skills in even be, being able to navigate this scenario. 
to be able to speak for his brothers and to land them in a certain place. What's interesting to me, okay, so I've been spending a lot of time with Joseph these days, right? What's interesting to me is why take this amount of time for where they're going to land? I mean, okay, they moved, they, they settled wherever and like, let's keep going on, but it's like verse after verse saying, okay, they're going to land here in the land of Goshen. We've got to get permission. Okay, we got royal permission. Okay, now they're going to land there with their flocks and their herds and all that. What is going on? Why is it critical for us to know that? Why does it seem like the author is like, you, you need to pay attention to where they're landing and how all that went down, kind of the separation from Egypt, as you appreciate the entire story. And, and can I just share a little bit of like, what's in the backstory? What why this is significant. So before the brothers and Jacob had been living in the land of Canaan, but the problem was in Canaan, they were actually not living very distinct from all the nations and tribes around them. That's, that, that was the problem. So in the land of Canaan, they were beginning to look like all the other nations. They were beginning to, their behavior, and, and I mean, they were even a stench in the land of Canaan, doing immoral things, unethical things. Like in, in and here they are supposed to be distinct. They're the family of promise, but they're looking like the rest of the people around them. So God, one of the things he's doing in this whole chaotic story of Joseph's life is pulling this family that starts out as 70, pulling them down. Well, now they're going to live in Egypt. But notice it says the Egyptians want nothing to do with shepherds, so they're going to leave this family alone. And over the next, like, four centuries, what's going to happen to this family is this family of 70, which doesn't sound like much of a nation, is going to become a, a nation of hundreds of thousands of people. And they're going to grow and live in a certain area where they're going to reinforce the true worship of the one true God. They're going to live a, as a family and have, like, an identity and a culture built as a family. You see what God is doing there. They wouldn't just be a group of 70. They're going to become a nation. And when God, when the, when the timing is what God wants it to be, he's actually going to send them back to Canaan as a nation that will be a light to the other nations. See, here's the parallel. Yes, God brings together a people, but then God also regularly sets apart his people. See, you can't miss that. Yes, God brings together a people, but he also sets them apart. Individually, they matter. And God brings them together. But now part of his work is making them distinct. Making them, setting them apart. It's 1 Peter 2. We read 1 Peter 2.10 a minute ago. 1 Peter 2.9 says this. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. And then it says you are a holy nation. What does holy mean? It doesn't mean like better than just better than everybody else like holier than now. It means, no, you're distinct. You've been set apart for a purpose. You're a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him, the one who's called you out of darkness and brought you into the light. Like, you have a mission. And part of the reason I bring you together as a people, part of the reason that God brings us together is to set us apart and say, this is what it looks like when you live your life under the lordship of Jesus Christ. God brings people together and sets us apart. He sets us apart. When we come to the New Testament, we come to like living as a church, it's not so much that he sets us apart geographically. He actually sets us apart internally. He gives us his Holy Spirit. 
The Spirit of God resides in us. He sets us apart because we have a relationship with God. And you know, when you have a deep relationship with somebody, it changes you. It changes you. When you have a deep friendship with, with somebody, it changes you. And when God works deeply in your life, it changes you. You're not the same person. We're distinct. We're distinct as the people of God, or we're meant to be. And it's not because there's just like this list of about eight kind of practices that we just try to avoid these eight things, and that'll make us distinct. It's so much more than that. It's a relational dynamic. God has chosen in this age not to cluster us in one geographic location, but actually to spread us out. Yeah, we gather, but then after we gather, we scatter. And and we bring God's light. We're outposts of God's grace. We represent Jesus in this world. We're still making followers of Jesus, but we're also called to be set apart as we live in this world. So the question is, are you set apart? Does your life look different And maybe this is a good question to follow up afterwards with another Christian friend is, like, maybe it's good to talk through, okay, how how does my life look different? I mean, are my goals and values the same as other people in northern Delaware? Like, if you were to take my same profile, my same whatever, kind of look at another person, is, is there any difference with the way I would make priorities, the way I would parent, the way I would think about my money, the way I would think about how I use my words, how kind I would be, how, how intentional I would be in relationships. Is there any difference in that? Do I, do I look at retirement different? Do I look at my time different? Do, do I recognize that, yeah, I may feel different. This world may not always feel quite like home. And that's like, yeah, totally okay. That it wouldn't always feel at home. Like I wouldn't always feel super comfortable being a Christian, living out my faith. Because this is a world where the value system sometimes is going to collide. And even for our kids, do we remind them, yeah, sometimes the value system is going to collide. Sometimes it's not going to be easy. Because God has gathered a group of people together, but he's also set us apart. Are we in tune to that? So what we're pursuing, does it look any different? Because God has set us apart. It's a question worth asking. It's a question worth thinking about. I want you to see one final kind of parallel in this story, and it's continuing on in Genesis 47. Genesis 47, verse 7, it says, so we're, we're tracking this story. Joseph has brought his brothers in, but now Joseph brings in his father, Jacob. And he must have been in pretty poor health because it says Joseph had to stand him. He stood him before Pharaoh. And this weak man who we're going to find out is 130 years old, It says here that this man, Jacob, blessed Pharaoh. Just take note of that. You've got a frail older man who's blessing the one who's ruling that region. Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many are the days of the years of your life? Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Jacob thinks of the hardness, just the difficulty of all that he's been through. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. I've not yet attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Twice, Jacob blessed Pharaoh. So actually, wherever Jacob goes, the promise to his grandfather, Abraham, was you are blessed to be a blessing. So wherever you go, you're going to bring the blessing of God. 
That's the intention. And so kind of putting that together and another parallel I want you to see is that God brings people together and he sets them apart. But it's with the intention to bless those around them. Do you see that? Like This is part of your identity if you're a part of the people of God. God, God brings a group of people together and he sets them apart. But that is meant to be a blessing to those around them. So much so that when Jacob comes to Egypt, he can bless Pharaoh. So much so that Pharaoh's even saying to Joseph, like, maybe your brothers can be in charge of the livestock. Because it seems like wherever you go, Joseph, things flourish. And if your brothers are anything like you, maybe they need to be in charge of some things as well. I mean, this is amazing. The blessing of God goes with God's people and and the possibilities of application seem pretty endless to me here. I do want our Sunday morning gatherings to be a blessing to the community. Anybody that would come in would find the welcoming heart of God, would find people that love the Lord and love people. But then I think in a moment we're going to be done, we're going to go our separate ways, and we're going to go, uh, I mean, dozens of locations, hundreds of locations this week. We're going to fill a lot of different neighborhoods, a lot of different floors on different office levels. We're going to, we're going to see a lot of different people we're going to encounter uh, on the screen. We're, we're going to be invested. And the question I would ask is, are we being a blessing to those people? I think of all the teachers in our congregation. And I wonder, like, are we being a blessing? The teachers in our congregation, are they being a blessing? They, are, are they people flourishing because of their work and their love? I, I think of all those who work in a financial field, and I think of the integrity and the hard work that they do. And are they blessing others because like that person, that woman, that man is a person of integrity. I can count on them. I think of all the, all the people that work hard in the trades. And, and certainly you have to have money to live, but it's so much more than that. It's about like doing a good job for people and caring about your coworkers. I think about all the people that are not gossiping about their coworkers. I think about the, all the people who are a blessing to their neighbors. I think about all the volunteer hours. It seems like every single week I'm learning of another person that like, oh, they volunteer there. Like, ah, this is amazing. So they don't get paid a dime and yet they're, they're saying, I do have something that God has given me and that's time and I'm going to use that even when it's hard. I'm going to volunteer. I'm going to serve others and I'm going to meet needs. And I think about the person that looks after the vulnerable person. Everybody else forgets. This person doesn't forget about the vulnerable person. I just think like, how many possibilities How many possibilities is God going to put in front of you to be a blessing to those around you? We're the light of the world and seasons are going to change. And you know what? You may not always even feel like you're being a blessing. Some days it feels like, I don't feel like I'm being a blessing. It just seems like I'm grinding out day after day after day. But you never know. You never know what your care, what your love, what even when sometimes it's not even appreciated or noticed. And I think the greatest blessing we can bring is certainly the message of salvation and God gives us opportunity to do that. To tell people you don't have to live without hope. And there is something you can, you can put your faith in, someone you can put your faith in that can change absolutely everything else. So the Lord gave us the story of Joseph for reasons. And what I've hoped you've been able to see is, yeah, the story of Joseph is a beautiful piece of literature with pretty moving parts, but there's something more than that I've wanted you to be able to see 
who our Heavenly Father is, what He's like. This is who He is. This is the mercy He shows. This is the way He rewrites stories that seem to be such a mess. This is the restoration and the reconciliation that God can do. This is the heart of God, the heart of grace, the heart of forgiveness, the heart of mercy, the heart of patience. And then I want you to like, okay, so we have Joseph and we have God doing His work, but I, I want you to see like one more step. That means you can walk by faith. That means you can walk in a world where you don't know what comes next and you don't know what a day and a week and a month hold. You can take those next steps of faith because you know who the Lord is and you know how he treats people. You know what he's done in the past and you actually know more than even Joseph knew at, the point, at that point. You know that Jesus Christ went to the cross for you. I hope this, I hope this shapes the way you see your identity. I am a part of a group of people that have been brought together. And this group has been set apart. And we have been set apart, not to be kind of proud of ourselves and judgmental of everybody else, but actually to bring blessing to the world. Let me ask God to help us in that. Father, thank you for this story of Joseph and the parallels that we see. We're reminded that you never change. And because you are all wise, because you're good, because you're patient, that is such encouraging news to us, that you never change. So Lord, I pray that you would continue to give us the help we need and the hope we need to continue to take our next steps walking by faith. I pray even the story of Joseph might bring healing and hope where maybe it just felt like all that was on, in fumes and it was hard to face another day. Pray that your spirit would make your word come alive and give us faith to believe what we've read, what we've seen to be true. Lord, we need you to be our vision. We need you to help us see exactly what you're doing. So we ask for that in the form of a song and in praying, we ask for you to be our vision. In Christ's name, amen.